In late March of 1941, Winston Churchill began receiving intelligence concerning the travels and conversations of Japan's foreign minister, Yosuke Matsuoko. In his meeting in Japan, or excuse me, in Berlin, Japan's foreign minister had been pressed by the Germans to get the Japanese to attack the British at Singapore, since it was believed by the Germans that the capture of Singapore would be instrumental to the quick and overall defeat of Britain. When Churchill first received this intelligence, he was not too worried. Churchill and the British in general believed that Singapore was essentially undefeatable. There was a naval base to protect against attacks by sea, and to the north lay hundreds of miles of jungle to ward off a land attack. And besides, Singapore itself had a garrison of around about 100,000 men. Churchill called it the Gibraltar of the East. As one writer expressed it, in the 1930s and 1940s, British forces stationed in Singapore epitomized the British military idea of officers and gentlemen. The Raffles Hotel was as synonymous with military life for, mi- for many of the officers as heat, tin hats, khaki uniforms, and not forgetting the ever-present Japanese threat. However, as prevalent as the threat may have been, there was an air of almost lethargy among the forces stationed there at the time. An attack was expected, but victory for the British forces was considered a foregone conclusion. Singapore was designed as a formidable fortress and thought impregnable. This arrogance was to contribute to the eventual downfall of the British forces. And so the events of December 1941 through February 1942 would prove that all of this confidence in Singapore as an unassailable citadel was confidence that was grossly misplaced. Now this morning as we turn our attention to Amos chapter 6, we find that the Israelites of Amos' time likewise had misplaced their confidence. They pay a heavy price for it. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Amos chapter 6 as we continue hearing from the prophet Amos. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calneh and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity? And would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up and carry out his bones from the house 
And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. Then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. Do horses run on rocks? Or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low depar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken car name for ourselves? For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This chapter that we have just read pronounces woe upon those who are at ease. It announces the judgment that was coming upon those who were reveling in their possessions and who felt secure in this world while being careless of God and unconcerned about what was coming upon them. As such, this chapter is a helpful reminder that this world, despite all appearances, does not provide security. Indeed, it cannot provide security. As such, the message of this chapter is pertinently relevant to us, even as it was to the nation of Israel at the time that Amos delivered this message to them. So as we walk through this chapter this morning, we'll, we'll look at the circumstances and the outlook of these people, and then we will see just how unstable that worldly foundation is. And we'll see ultimately where true security lies. Now, as we've mentioned several times in this series in the book of Amos, the nation of Israel at this time was in an outwardly very prosperous condition. Jeroboam, uh, called Jeroboam II, was king at this time, and during his reign there was, there was military expansion. The prophet Amos informs us about the, the wealth that was enjoyed at least by the, the upper crust of society in various places in the book of Amos, this chapter being one of those places. He describes them in verse 4 as reclining on beds of ivory and sprawling on couches and eating lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. Now, at first, we might not think much about this consumption of meat, but for the time, this this was elaborate. Eating meat would have been much more rare among them at this time than in our culture today. We see them at their ease in verse 5, how they improvise on the harp, how they've composed songs for themselves, or perhaps as the ESV translated it, they invent instruments of music for themselves. Either way, they're, they're making music. In verse 6, they drink wine from, from, from bowls. Notice that it's bowls or basins. It's not just, not just cups. There's, there's excess drinking from a bowl. They anoint themselves with the finest of oils. In other words, they're, they're going all out to, to pamper themselves. And then as to the military expansion at the time, we're told of this in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. Even though Jeroboam II was a wicked man, we're told there, 2 Kings 14, that he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. 
Now prior to this time, the northern kingdom had been chipped away at and had some of its land holdings lost. But the Lord demonstrated his kindness even to a wicked nation. The Lord demonstrated his kindness to a wicked nation even through a wicked king. And yet, instead of receiving this this kindness of the Lord and being drawn by this kindness back to repentance and renewed spiritual life, the nation had received this kindness and yet indulged themselves in earthly things and continued on their journey away from the Lord. These people are wealthy, self-indulgence, and they don't care about what was coming upon Israel. And so at the close of verse 6, we're told, Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Despite the outward prosperity, the people were going to be ruined. And they don't understand that this is going to happen to them. They think that all is well. The army is winning the battles. Back home, there's plenty of food. What could possibly go wrong in a situation like this? These people felt secure, as we find in verse 1. They were arrogant, as we find in verse 8. They were like that rich fool of whom we read in Luke chapter 12 this morning, who said to himself, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. People like that place all of their stock in the things of this earth. And when the things of this earth seem to be going well, then they're happy and they're content and they feel no need to seek their security elsewhere. Paul described the worldly mentality of some in Philippians 3.19 by saying that their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, in the context of Philippians 3, when Paul said those things, he seemed to have in mind the Judaizing false teachers of whom he had been warning. But even still, those words could be applied to the people here in Amos chapter 6. Their God is their appetite. Their glory was in their shame. Their idolatry, their immorality, their oppression and violence, their minds were set on earthly things, and ultimately their end was to be destruction people of Amos 6 didn't understand that their end was destruction. How can destruction be our future, they ask. They did not understand. They said their armies are winning. We're able to obtain all the foods and all the luxuries that we want. But the Lord says to them, as we find in verses 2 and 3, go over to Calneh and look and go from there to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than yours. Now in asking such a question, the Lord seems to be reminding the Israelites of the downfall of other kingdoms and therefore reminding them from those downfalls not to be too proud. What happened to Calneh and to Hamath and to Gath can happen to Israel as well. And this line of thought continues to flow with the question asked in verse 3. Do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence? This verse seems to sum up Israel's behavior. They tried desperately to put off the day of calamity, either to ignore it altogether, to ignore the warnings that Moses had given in Deuteronomy of what would happen to them as a nation if they turned away from the Lord, to ignore the warnings that had already come to them through the prophet Hosea, or else simply to tell themselves that these prophecies would not be fulfilled in their day, or something to that effect. They're trying to to put off the day of calamity by way of denial. But 
On the other hand, by means of their wickedness, their violence, their theft, their oppression of the poor, and so on, they're actually bringing the day of calamity closer to them. They're, they're fooling themselves. They're saying, oh, no, 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 it's not, it's not going to come to us. But at the same time, they are practically beckoning the day of calamity to come by means of their wickedness. Now, in verses 8 through 11, we catch a glimpse of what this day of calamity was, was going to be like. Let's look there. The Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And it will be if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. Then he will say, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. This was a description of the day of calamity which they were actually bringing on to themselves by their wickedness. This was what the day of the Lord was going to be like to them. It was going to be darkness and not light. If ten men were in a house, they would all die. And when the bodies were gathered the one survivor would be asked if there were anyone else in the house. And when he said no one, those gathering the bodies would say, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. Now, it was difficult to say why those who were gathering the bodies would give such a response to the sole survivor in the house. Why would, why would he say, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned? Perhaps they meant that under the circumstances, there was no point in calling upon God. The disaster had already struck Those who had died were already dead. There's no point in calling on the name of the Lord. The Lord is not going to bring them back to life. No need to pray for the dead. Or perhaps there's a recognition that this was the judgment of God. And they didn't want to talk about God anymore. Didn't want to hear about God. Because they understood that God was the one who had actually brought this on them. Now at an earlier time, these people would have gladly and readily identified themselves as the people of God. But now, now that it was made clear that God himself had set himself against them, they don't want anything to do with the Lord anymore. They don't even want to talk about the Lord. There are a few possibilities for what could be going on there, but what is noteworthy is that it seems that the calamity does not in any way get the attention of the people so as to bring about their repentance. Godless they had lived before the day of calamity had struck, And so it appears godless they will continue after the day of calamity has struck. The folly of their current course is shown yet again in the closing verses of the chapter. The Lord asks them if horses run on rocks. Well, they better not or else they're going to stumble, they're going to break a leg, they're going to get hurt. Also, do oxen plow the rocks? Or alternatively, the reading could be, does one plow the sea with oxen? Again, the answer is no. You don't do that. These are unnatural things. It's a fool's errand to pursue them. But the Lord says that they themselves were pursuing unnatural things. They themselves were on a fool's errand. Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And the people of Israel are doing these things. They are turning justice on its head and righteousness on its head. Instead of pursuing those things, they are pursuing the exact opposite, calling good evil and evil good. Unnatural things. 
And though they rejoice, as we see in verse 13, they rejoice in the places that their military has conquered. King Jeroboam has expanded the borders. They've made some conquests. Yet, those places will be overrun when the day of God's judgment comes upon them. So the Lord says in verse 14, Behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. In other words, those very same places that were mentioned in 2 Kings 14 as the places which Jeroboam had restored their borders to, to Hamath and the Sea of the Arabah, those are going to be the places where this great nation attacks the Israelites when the day of calamity comes upon them. These people are at ease, and they thought that they dwelt securely. They're greatly mistaken. Their foundations were only on sand, and when the storm of divine judgment came upon them, the structure built on the sand would collapse. According to verse 7, it would collapse in such a way as that those who thought they were number one in Israel would actually be first in line, leading the exiles into captivity. The people felt secure, but it was security merely based on shifting external earthly circumstances. Their position felt solid. It was just a house of cards. And this kind of security and complacency has by no means, by no means, been unique to the people of Amos's day. We see this kind of security and safety exhibited by many throughout the scriptures. We saw it in Luke 12, that rich fool. We see it in Jeremiah 49, as Jeremiah prophesies against the pagan nations. Jeremiah 49 is, contains prophecies against the sons of Ammon and against the Edomites. And the sons of Ammon are characterized in Jeremiah 49.4 as being boastful and trusting in their treasures. They've got money. They think they're all right. The Edomites are characterized as being deceived by the arrogance of their hearts. And they, the idea is that they thought they lived up there in the clefts of the rocks. Surely no army can get to them. We're safe way up here in our fortresses in the rocks. And on and on it goes. So Solomon says in Proverbs 18, 10, and 11, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. Isn't that the way it works? That the rich man deceives himself into thinking that his wealth will keep him safe. It's not going to happen. Riches fade. So according to Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. In other words, all that wealth that you've acquired one way or the other can quickly dissipate and get away from you. And even when riches do not take wings, they can't always deliver. It is said that when the French... Uh, infidel philosopher uh, Voltaire was dying, that he said to his doctor, I will give you half of what I am worth if you can give me six months of life. And I imagine that if the doctor could have done what was asked of him, he would have gladly taken Voltaire up on the offer. But wealth cannot deliver from death. It's a high wall. It's only in the imagination. We imagine that wealth will keep us safe, but it won't, at least not in the day of calamity when the Lord's Judgment sovereignly descends. Lasting safety is not found in wealth. It is an illusion to think so. But yet, despite the clear truth of God's word about this, and despite the sad experience of so many who trusted wealth in the past, 
How many continue to do this today? How many are there who think that money will solve all of the problems that they face and enable them to weather whatever storms may come upon them? Now, certainly, people of the world think in this way. It's no surprise that they do. But how often do the people who profess the name of Christ think the same thing? How many of us here this morning would at least cognitively acknowledge that, yes, wealth will not deliver us, wealth will not provide us ultimate security? How many who would cognitively acknowledge that, yet at the same time live practically as if wealth did provide ultimate security or ultimate happiness? Or how many are there who trust physical strength of some kind, either our our wit and cleverness or brute physical strength, either our own or that of a nation, military might. The thing to remember is that here below there are no guarantees. All successes of the past guarantee nothing for the future. Though Israel rejoiced in their acquired towns, nevertheless the Lord announces that he would raise up a nation against them. All of their citadels, all of their arrogance would profit them nothing in the day of calamity. And so it is that Solomon says yet again, Proverbs 21, 30 and 31, there is no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. These things are out of our hands. We have to be looking elsewhere if we're going to have true security. At the time when Japan entered World War II in December 1941, the day after they attacked Pearl Harbor, They also attacked the British air bases that were north of Singapore on the Malay coast. And on the the day in which those, uh, the British air defenses were taken out, the Royal Navy sent out as a response the battleship, the Prince of Wales, and the cruiser, the Repulse, and they were sunk by Japanese torpedo bombers. And when Winston Churchill wrote his memoirs, of telling of the time in which he received the phone call of the sinking of those two ships. He said, I put the telephone down. I was thankful to be alone. In all the war, I never received a more direct shock. And then began the land fighting as the Japanese army raced down the Malayan Peninsula through the jungle, many of them on bicycles covering 550 or 600 miles in less than two months. February 8th, they launched their attack into Singapore, and one week later, it was done. Singapore and its thousands of men, maybe 85,000 men, surrendered. Churchill called it the worst disaster and the largest capitulation in British military history. So much for military superiority. So much for earthly security. The unexpected and the unpredictable can indeed happen, and sometimes it does. Or just think to more recent events, the events within the span of most of our lifetimes here this morning. Who would have imagined September 10th 2001, that the next day the World Trade Center towers both would be on the ground and that the Pentagon itself would have been struck. Life is uncertain and try as we might through financial or military means or wit and cleverness or whatever to ensure otherwise, those defenses are never quite as strong as we expect that they are. And so the text says here, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. Isaac Taylor expressed it well in his book, Saturday Evening. He said, The weeks of one summer, the brief interval between the springing of the blade and the putting in of the sickle on our fields, may see pass away as a forgotten dream. 
what we had believed to stand as firm as a mountain. There's no security here in the earth. And Solomon says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.4. And the sooner that all of us learn that and believe it and live like we believe it, the better off we will be. It is only righteousness that can deliver us in the day of wrath. And being unrighteous in and of ourselves, we need to get righteousness from somewhere. Where do we go? To whom shall we go? The answer is quite simple. We have to go to the Lord himself. We have to stop listening to all of those voices that would say to us the same thing that that uncle or that undertaker would say to the survivor in the house in verse 10. Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. There are voices like that that say, keep quiet, the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. Sometimes those voices come from the outside. Sometimes those voices come from inside of us. It's been said before that Satan will tempt you early on in your life to think that it's too early to give your life to Christ. And that he will tell you at the end of your life that it is too late. And both of those are the devil's lies. It's never too early in your life to begin living for Christ, to trust him and love him and serve him. And as long as you are living, if you have a desire to follow Christ, it's never too late. Repent and believe in him. Now, maybe... You have wasted years of your life and have followed the ways of wickedness. Maybe you're on death's door and don't have much time left here on earth. Satan would love to keep you back from Christ and keep you back from following him at that point by telling you that you've wasted your life so much that Christ would turn you away if you went to him to trust in him. But it's not true. There may be a lot of wickedness back in your past, but don't let that turn you away. Our Lord is gracious and good. According to the prophet Joel, he is the one who is able to restore to us the years that the locusts have eaten. And the thief on the cross had certainly wasted most of his life, but Christ saved him powerfully at the end. And now the power of Christ to save sinners is made known every time someone reads through the Gospel of Luke. And so don't listen to those voices from Satan that would try to keep you away from the Lord and say the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. Certainly also the world will do what it can to keep your focus on earthly things. We'll try to tell you that despite what the experience of others has been, despite what the scriptures declare themselves, worldly and temporal things will be able to satisfy your heart and your soul and bring you happiness, security, and take care of you. The world will present itself to your flesh as the end-all, be-all of existence. The money, the entertainment, the immorality, the other forms of pleasure, the sense of security, and so on. But security and satisfaction that the world offers will only fade, and it will prove to be striving after the wind, as Solomon found by sad experience in the book of Ecclesiastes. And sometimes it might be our own voice that would tell us not to mention the name of the Lord. Sometimes the voices from inside of us will try to tempt us to walk in a path of self-reliance and self-satisfaction to seek security in what we have accomplished. And we might look to various realms of accomplishment, be it the academic realm or the domestic realm or the vocational realm or otherwise. We tend to think a lot of ourselves. And we can follow this sin to greater and greater lengths when we tell ourselves that the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned and we turn more and more inward and looking more and more to ourselves. We can see death and destruction all around us, and yet be too proud to call upon the name of the Lord. We can live 
and have our lives that are imploding and unraveling and still be too proud to call on the name of the Lord. Don't listen to those voices and those thoughts that would keep you turned away from the Lord. If Amos 6 is clear about anything, it is clear that worldly wealth and earthly strength do not deliver in the day of calamity. It's also clear that arrogance, smugness, and oppression only serve to hasten and bring upon us that day of calamity. Amos 6 reminds us that there is no safety apart from the Lord, regardless of how much we may think otherwise. Again, as we heard from Proverbs 11.4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. We need righteousness in order to deliver us from death. Righteousness to deliver us from eternal death. The eternal death that we deserve as the judgment of God for our sins. The problem is that we don't have any righteousness in ourselves. Try as we might, we could never have any righteousness in ourselves. There's only one place to go. We have to go to the Lord to get it. And so the Lord says through Isaiah, in Isaiah 55 too, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. And again, Isaiah 45, 24, They will say of me, Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Righteousness and strength are only found in the Lord. Security, stability, and deliverance from the day of calamity only come from the Lord. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is the Lord our righteousness. When we receive him by faith, Christ himself is our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, as we find in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And so, friend, wherever you're at in life this morning... Stop looking for security and deliverance anywhere else other than in Christ alone. Now, if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ, please understand that the day of your calamity is coming. One day you're going to have to stand before God and you're going to be held accountable and responsible for all of your sins. And if you don't seek after the Lord, then... Anything that you do to try to avert that day of calamity will only serve to bring that day upon you. And so, friend, look to Christ. Turn away from your sins and trust in Him. He Himself is that righteousness which delivers from judgment. But He will not deliver you if you don't turn away from your sins and trust in Him. And so, friend, turn away today and look to Christ. Christ Himself is the Son of God who came into the world, who became a man to suffer and die a cruel death on the cross and then rise from the grave three days later so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Christ becomes our righteousness because he himself took on our unrighteousness and paid the penalty that we deserve. And if you're here as a believer, then you too be reminded afresh of the instability of this worldly order and its utter insufficiency in regard to all that truly matters. This is, this is a word that I certainly need to hear. My sense is that many of us would do well to hear this. We get so wrapped up in financial and earthly temporal things, and we fail to remember that this stuff is, is passing away. We brought nothing into the world. We'll take nothing out with us when we go. And so, friends, let's all redirect our gaze to Christ. 
Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. Christ who is all in all to those who believe in his name. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the kingdom of of Christ would be to us that treasure hidden in a field which we would sell all that we have to buy so that we can possess that treasure. Father, we ask that we would treasure you most of all. Treasure Christ. Treasure the inheritance that is ours where moth does not destroy, rust does not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Father, Forgive us for having hearts that are so wed to the world. We pray, Father, that you would break us away from these earthly things and that you would redirect our hearts to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.